welcome to the Bright Shift Podcast. I am Leila, founder of Bright Shift and your host. Bright Shift is an online platform where we offer online therapy, workshops, and meditation sessions to individuals and workplaces. You can find us at brightshift.co. Today, we're going to talk about archetypes, myths, and nature and their importance in our lives and our psycho-spiritual journey. I have a very special guest, Dr. Craig Chalquest, who is a professor, author, deep educator, a laureologist, a storyteller, and consultant who writes and teaches at the intersection of psyche, story, and imagination, with one foot in the academy and the other in the world. Throughout his career as a former university professor, he has designed and launched more than 40 psychology, philosophy, mythology, and ecotherapy courses for graduate and undergraduate students. He has a PhD in depth psychology and has also practiced as a marriage and family therapist for nine years. He is currently working on a PhD in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program at CIIS. He is the founder of the world's first ecotherapy certificate program and has written many books about different topics, including ecotherapy, myths, alchemy, depth psychology, spirituality, and parapsychology. To learn more about Dr. Chalkwest's work, please visit chalkwest.com. Dr. Chalkwest also has a podcast called The Lorecast, which is a very interesting and insightful podcast. Dr. Chalkwest, welcome to the Bright Shift podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate being invited. I'd like to start with asking you, how do you define the archetypes and how can we identify our own archetypes? Yeah, great question. Very important one, too. Um, that word archetype is used so differently, even within Carl Jung's kind of intellectual community. So we all have different ways of talking about it. One, one thing that shows up a lot in the definitions is that an archetype is a primary pattern that occurs everywhere. And um, an example of that would be the image of a spiral. And so when Carl Jung wrote about spirals psychologically, he talked about how in our lives we go through many different phases and we revisit old themes, like kind of working our way up the spiral turn by turn and encounter things before that we're familiar with. And hopefully we do it at a higher level each time we do, you know. And uh, a spiral is something that always also shows up in the natural world. So the spiral spiral of water going down the drain or a spiral galaxy. And I was interested to find out too that um, spiral galaxies, by the way, they tend to last longer than other kinds because as the arms move through inter intergalactic space, they scoop up hydrogen. So the, the spiral galaxy is like this uh, self-nourishing being. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because it reminds me of Young talking about individuation and gaining the capacity to nourish ourselves as we go through life. So the spiral is an example of an archetype. Also basic themes like death, rebirth, um, God images, images of the divine that, that show up across cultures. Um, those are all examples of archetypes. Initiation is one. Are they repeated patterns? 
I think they are. And they're big patterns. They're, um, they're existential in the sense that they're, they're big patterns that occur when we go through major stages of our lives. So some years ago, when my dad died, um, there was, it was a time in my life where there was a lot of things I was letting go of simultaneously. And also sitting with the grief of losing him and going through his things and looking after my mother and all of that. And it was as though death for me had assumed it, it like a capital D. <laughs> it was a field that I was in. That's how an archetype works. It's not just a, a label or anything like that. And also when you when I hear mothers talking about giving birth to a child, you know, the theme of birth with a capital D is very archetypal for everybody who's involved, but particularly for the mother. Okay, so even events in our lives, they can have an archetypal theme to them, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. As, as an academic, I've often gone to graduation and we all put on our robes and our hat and all that. There's some, you know, we, we laugh about it when we're not doing it, but once we're there on the stage with all of our graduates, it takes on this really serious and wonderful, magical aura because they're, we're launching them, you know? Yes. How about the, um, how can we identify our own archetypes? Yeah. One thing I always do with myself, um, and I'm actually doing it right now because I'm coming up on, I think, a stage of transition in my own life, especially with my career. Um, I ask myself, um, what are some of the themes and patterns and images that keep popping up all around me? in my dreams, in things that, that look random on the outside, but, but really don't feel random. You know, they all kind of fit the pattern. So there's a lot of images of transition happening for me right now. And in fact, um, next week I'm flying out to a leadership conference. I'm going to be presenting on something called the enchanted leader, people who lead through inspiration. And that's part of it. And a lot of things happening. So identifying, um, where we are in our lives and whether we're at a turning point, that's a big indicator that something archetypal is happening. But um, also, Jung thought that we, in addition to these archetypal situations that we get into, Jung thought that we all, each of us, come in with an archetype, that we're kind of born into it. So just as we have a physical self and a social self and perhaps a spiritual self, Jung said, well, we have a mythic self, too. We have an archetypal self. And so when you think about Jung as an example of that, there's all kinds of imagery of the magician, the wizard, the alchemist that just clings to him all through his life. And that's the one he identified with. I, I always call it the mage to kind of sum up all the different expressions of that magical archetype that I think he expressed. Some people would be the hero, some people would be the love and beauty goddesses or wisdom, which, by the way, is usually feminine in the world's folklore. Um, I think of somebody like Scheherazade, for instance, um, discerning, clever, wise, eloquent, um, knowing exactly what's happening, seeing underneath appearances. That's All of that's involved in wisdom. So to, to sit with, well, you know, what's, where does my life keep coming back to? Where are the themes that I keep going to? Am I more heroic or more of a trickster? Yeah, I think a lot of comedians identify with that archetype. So. 
do we have multiple archetype present in our lives at any given time? So the thing that makes this complicated is that I think we move into different archetypal situations through life and particularly at the turning points. But in addition to that, there's the one that we identify with. So to use an example from Young again, he was pretty consistently a mage, a kind of wizardly figure through his whole life. But, you know, his, his career early on looked very different from his career later. Early on, he was more like the healer figure, which is also archetypal. So that was, especially when he was getting in psychiatric training. And then toward the end of his life, he was more of a teacher figure. So it's, it's both. <laughs> okay. And they can shift. Yep. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we need to um, discover our archetypes? What values does knowing our archetypes add to our lives? Yeah, that's such an important question. So I'll use an example from Young's casebook. Um, he had a new patient who came in afraid that he was losing his life. And he said, I'm having these incredible, bizarre dreams and nightmare with these monstrous figures in them. I don't know what to do with myself. I've never had dreams like this before. So he described one particular dream to Young. And Young got up. They were sitting in Young's library. He got up and he pulled down an old book from alchemy, which some people think of as the ancient attempt to turn lead into gold. And that was part of it. But alchemy is actually a very long wisdom tradition. And it's, uh, it's in many parts of the world, China, the Middle East, um, lots of different places, Egypt. And so Young, the image was familiar to him. So he flipped through the book and he, and he held it up and said, did it look anything like this? And it was an exact match for what was in this guy's dream. And Young said, see, other people have had this experience. It's not just you. You're not alone in this, right? So what Young was doing was, first of all, reassuring him that he wasn't crazy because he was having experiences that people have had forever. He could have pulled down a book of Chinese alchemy and probably found a similar image, you know, or um, you know, lots of different, lots of different forms of alchemy. But it's, you know, it, it has spread all over. But in addition to that, it's also a way of making meaning of something that feels bigger than we are because archetypes are bigger than us. So I'm thinking of the experience of, um, you know, if you ever fall in love, but let's say that whatever culture you come from, let's, there's no culture that's like this, but just to have a theoretical example, let's say you grew up in a culture that knew nothing about falling in love, right? You'd think you were nuts. <laughs> You'd worry that you were losing your mind. Oh, I'm obsessed with this person and blah, 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 you know. And if someone came along who had that experience, they could say, oh, no, you're just in love. Everybody goes through this you know so it, and when you're in it it's bigger than you you can feel it right mm. so i think that's one of the things that western psychology really needs to learn not a lot not a, only about other cultures but also about this archetypal view that that sometimes it's not personal it's bigger than us so that's that's a huge help i think when people realize that yes absolutely so i think um Maybe we can find clues and guidance 
through looking at the archetypes, which it brings my next question. I know that you have and are working a lot with uh, storytelling, lures and with myths. So I'd like to know what is the role of myths in finding our archetype and how do myths and stories help us in general, psycho-spiritually speaking? Huge question. <laughs> One thing is that uh, myths, um, in the West, they tend to be dismissed as um, either superstitions or um, there's a lot of people who say, oh, the, we, science has explained that, right? You know, we, we know it, why the earth moves and why there's the ocean and why there's stars and all that, you know. But that really is a, a quite literal-minded way of thinking about myth. It's, it's actually a misunderstanding. Um, in, in cultures where myth comes from, they're used as wisdom stories. It's understood kind of like we use fiction. It's understood that they're not to be taken literally that, you know, when indigenous Americans talk about thunder, uh, thunderbird being up in a cloud when, when there's a lightning storm approaching, they don't mean there's a literal bird up there flapping its wings emitting lightning, you know? So there's something deeper in the story and that's what Jung noticed. So, um, myths in a way, they take the archetype, they're based in archetypes, but they make it more specific. So there, Joseph Campbell talked a lot about the hero archetype, but the hero appears differently in many different cultures. So there's many faces of the hero and the, and the heroine, of course. And likewise with Young, he, in a letter to a friend of his, he said, um, he actually specified for us what, what form his personal archetype took. He said, I identify with Faust, the alchemist from German folklore. And when you look at parallels between the story of Faust and Young's life, they're absolutely uncanny. And it's like that for all of us. So our personal myth, it, it's grounded in some archetype, but it fills it out more. And it gives us a story. Archetypes don't really have stories until they turn into myths, it seems like. Okay, so one great way to find our archetype is to read myths. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I've heard you once on your podcast that you mentioned it's good if you read your own myths in your own culture. Do you yeah. have any book recommendations like for different cultures, which kind of books we can read to um, to find our archetypes? So I would, um, I think I would start with collections that include myths from all over the world. And I've been surprised by how few those are. There's some out there and um, I wrote one of them. I have a book called Myths Among Us, and it borrows from many different cultures, different stories. Um, I think I'd start there, and I would also just go to the bookstore, whether online or in person, and, you know, or do a search online, like type in what your culture is, and then type in folklore. And it should pull up a lot of stuff. There's a lot of people collecting local and regional folklore these days, and it's really rich. So that's, I think that's what I would do. But there's something about um, something that the psyche does, the deep layer of the mind, where when we start looking for this, it, it tries to meet us. And so you'll be looking at myth books and all of a sudden there's one that'll kind of jump out at you. So it's like the story wants to be known, which is a great help because there's so many myths in the world. We can never read them all or hear them all. So. Yes, yes. 
Um, I'm thinking, would you say that if I'm reading a myth and I start to relate to it and then I don't like the ending or I don't <laughs> particularly like that archetype, do you think reading about that archetype, reading that myth can perhaps help me to maybe change the ending? Yep. That's, um, I think it's, it's actually, when, when we're living a myth, uh, and the archetype behind it, the more general archetype behind it, that we, unless we engage with it consciously and creatively, it's just living us. And we don't really have much control over where the story goes. So it's necessary actually to do that and not just read the story, which is important, but to act, but to start reworking the story so that we can bring our own personal contribution to it. Young mentions in that letter of he mentions Faust a lot of times because he identified with him. The Faust story is a tragedy and it ends with Faust going to hell. <laughs> he's, he's the original person who made a deal with the devil and then the devil dragged him down into hell afterward. Young's life didn't end like that. And that's because he worked with that story. He tried to redeem it. So to the degree that we can do that, we change the story. Great to know that. And uh, I think you have a course about our names as well. It's a, it, the course is on personal myth and um, it's at the Young platform. But as part of that, we do look at our names. That's a really good way to try to get an understanding of our myth. Um, to look up not, not just what our names are, but the etymology of our name and to actually go back for a while. So um, there's, one that comes to mind that pops up a lot. So there's there's a lot of people around, especially in the West, named John. And um, if you look up that name in a baby dictionary, I think it says something like um, God's grace or gift of God or something like that. And you have to go further. And if you do with a name like that, you come across a Mesopotamian God named Oannes who brought the gifts of civilization to human beings. So the, it's not only more than Western and outside the West, but it's ancient. It's, it's way older than our culture is. So you start, when you do that, you start getting a sense of the story and the archetypal feel of the mythic uh, elements behind the name. So that, that would be a way of doing it too. And for some of us, it's pretty quick. Um, and some of us have to work and work and work to figure out what the myth is. Um, I was teaching a class in higher ed uh, years ago, and um, there was a, we were actually talking about this very subject, and uh, there, one of my students said, um, well, you know, there's certain patterns that come up a lot in my life, like I embrace women's causes, I, I prefer the company of women to men, I don't understand men at all, um, I'm an athlete, I like to be out in the woods a lot, uh, she was a hunter too, I think, and then... Um, as she was speaking, her cell phone went off, and the person she, you know, she said sorry, and she went to turn her, her phone off, and she looked at who was calling, and the name that popped up on her phone was Diana, and she went, uh, "That's what my myth is." <laughs> <laughs> we had just been talking about Diana in class. The Greeks call her Artemis, nature personified. So some people get it really fast like that and others of us don't. <laughs> yes. I'm struggling to find my own myth, to be honest. Since I've heard that on your podcast, I keep thinking about 
my myth, trying to find it, but I have a difficult time. I think I should read more myths. Is there a thing called over-identifying with an archetype? If there is, how oh, yeah. can we avoid that? Oh yeah, I have a, that can happen not only individually, but culturally as well. So um, there's entire cultures that do it. And um, this, the country that I'm in, the USA, is a great example of that. We love the hero out here. It's all we think about. It's all we talk about. Um, it's absolutely disastrous to over-identify with because the hero and the monster work together. Whenever you hear a story about a hero, a monster immediately shows up. And when there's a monster, the hero shows up. We idealize the heck out of the hero. And um, even Joseph Campbell was guilty of that. But when you read hero figures in people's folklore, ours and everybody else's, what you find is that the hero is this tyrannical figure who needs a lot of training not to be dangerous. So some of these hero figures all through history, Gilgamesh, Cahulin um, uh, in the Irish world, um, Heracles in the Greek world, you know, they're, they're dangerous. And ancient storytellers understood that. They, were, they, were, they would tell hero stories sometimes as a kind of warning, like these were the people we avoid, you know, because they're they're just burning everything down, you know? So I think um, there, there is a lot of conversation out here in the USA about um, starting to be a lot of conversation about uh, getting unstuck from the hero. And one way to do that is to realize that there's many other archetypes available for dealing with people, um, more peaceful ones, especially, right? Um, like I'm thinking of a, there's an old Welsh story with a character who, um, his name is Mano Wedden, and he's not a typical hero. In fact, he's much more of a mage figure. And he has a friend who reminds me of the entire USA called Pradere, who's a hero figure, who is reckless as hell. And um, Pradere charges into this castle because it's not supposed to be there, and he disappears. And then his heroic mother goes in after him, and she disappears. And so Pradere's wife is crying and she's like, now what do we do? And Mana Wooden says, we wait, we work, and we think. And he's very patient and reflective and he realizes that the whole kingdom is under magical attack and that it's going to take a wizard's solution. So he's not only not reckless and heroic and impulsive, but at the end of the story, where Pradere would have just continued the family feud that's going on, he settles it. He brings reconciliation and he, he brings people together to talk to each other. So I think that's a much better model. <laughs> okay. And um, so countries, they would have collective archetypes, right? I think so. I, I, I'm sure ours does. And people from other countries who study young, have said something similar. Um, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. And I think those archetypes also, they have like a major impact on art, on cinema, on literature. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I know that you teach depth psychology for many years and a lot of work that you do, it's also uh, related to depth psychology. So I would love to hear from you how and why um, you think we should do psychology in a deep way? Psychology in a shallow way has some benefits, but um, 
Now, when I was in college many years ago, behavioral psychology was really popular. Um, behavioral and a little bit of the cognitive part mixed in with it. And the way that it was held in class by my teachers was that if people have the same behaviors, all we have to study is the behavior. We don't need to inquire into their inner world. But it should be obvious to anybody but academic intellectuals who study psychology <laughs> that you know the, the same person does one thing for completely different reasons than somebody else does the same thing, right? There are people who, um, for instance, I, I've seen this in students every now and then where they're getting ready to graduate and they self-sabotage so they don't graduate. So, you know, sometimes that self-protection at an unconscious level, sometimes that's a family legacy. Like um, with a couple of students of mine who were women, uh, they came from families where the women in the family going back many generations had a habit of putting off education and tending the family. And that got built into the family unconscious as an expectation. So they were meeting that expectation without even knowing it was there until they studied what was happening in, in, on their mother line, you know, going all the way back. So I think we need depth psychology and deep psychology because that's what studies the unconscious, whether it's the personal unconscious or collective unconsciousness or what have you, or cultural unconsciousness. And that tells us what's really going on. And that's what's necessary to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you say for someone who's not very familiar with depth psychology, um, what can they expect if they work with a depth psychologist that is so different from other like mainstream psychologies? Uh, yeah, you can expect to be asked about your dreams, which from the standpoint of depth psychology are communications from the unconscious and um, they're difficult to understand, for one thing, because they're in symbolic language. So there would be some work teaching you to think symbolically, to think metaphorically, the way literature and art do. So for people who are very rational and, and very maybe intellectual, too, dreams are sometimes difficult to understand because they don't speak literally. So looking at dreams, um, that might be one thing. Uh, another would be um, doing some sort of work with the imagination. Jung called it active imagination, and it's kind of like um, going into a daydream state, but inviting different parts of you in for a discussion. And Jung spends a lot of time doing that. And he talks about this in his autobiography, which I recommend, called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And oftentimes, the, the, uh, what he called the little people inside himself, um, different parts of his his uh, psyche surprised him by telling him things he didn't know. So those would be a couple of ways to start getting into this. Mm -hmm. Great to know. And I love the idea that in your work, there is so much care and emphasis on the role of nature and environment and how they can impact us in so many different ways, especially psychologically. Uh, you have written books about this topic and have created courses and training programs. Uh, and this is a topic that I also really uh, deeply care about. So could you please tell us what is eco-psychology and terra-psychology? Sure. The, um, the word eco-psychology started in uh, California, actually, in the 1990s 
And the idea behind it is to have psychology and ecology talk to each other. Um, it comes from the insight that we're always from some specific ecosystem, that we're part of the natural world, even though we like to think of ourselves, especially in the West, separate from it. And so eco-psychology says, no, let's, let's do psychology as though we were part of all this and see what happens then. So it's very basic to eco-psychology, all forms of it, to say that our health, our, our physical and mental health, depends on the health of the ecosystems we live in, and that, that it's impossible to be fully healthy and fully human on an ailing planet. So care of humans um, psychologically and care of the planet go together for eco-psychology. Uh, and there's a lot of work being done in that too. And um, a lot of evidence to support it. There's a ton of science, for instance, that says that when we reconnect even a little bit with the natural world, you know, it decreases anxiety, improves mood, makes us healthier and all kinds of benefits. Um, Terrapsychology is a bit of an offshoot from eco-psychology and depth psychology. And terrapsychology expands the conversation and says, all right, we, we are part of nature, no question about that. But what about the roadways and the buildings? And what about our houses if we live in a house? Uh, our cars if we drive a car? What about all of that? You know, the built environment. How does that show up inside of us too? And so we like to study all of that as well. Mm -hmm. Terra psychology can sound a little bit like feng shui to me. But yeah, I think um, I think feng shui was onto this. I've had a conversations with my Chinese students and colleagues about this. And I think some of the insights that come from it, I mean, they were onto this way before we were. <laughs> yeah. Like millennia. <laughs> yes. I think both of them are like ancient practices, eco-psychology and terra-psychology. And does psychology, does it have like a therapeutic aspect to it in the sense that like, if I see someone who practiced this modality, what would they recommend? What are the practices like in eco-psychology or terra-psychology? So um, thus far, terra-psychology has been used mostly to for exploration. And it doesn't really have a, a, a treatment or a healing methodology connected to it specifically. Um, eco-psychology does, and um, that, that would be eco-therapy, applied eco-psychology. And so eco-therapy practitioners, and I'm thinking about how my friend Linda Bizell works. Um, she is still deeply involved in all this, even though she's trying to retire, but it's not quite working because <laughs> she's just really passionate about all of it. And so um, she is a licensed psychotherapist and, as well. And so for her practice, when she was still actively practicing psychotherapy, her house has a, a big green space behind it. It's basically a permaculture food forest. And so she would take people out in the back and they would have a session outside for one thing instead of just inside. And then she would do things like ask them about their relationship with nature and what does it bring up for you and how much time do you actually spend anywhere in nature? It doesn't have to be the back country or the wilderness or anything, but just like outside in the park or on the beach or whatever. And then she would ask them about their schedule because a lot of us are so busy that we don't get time to be with nature itself, plants, animals, anything. So she would work with that. Um, 
one of the things we found in ecotherapy is that sometimes when we're feeling a bit depressed or anxious or other unpleasant states, we tend to think it's personal. It's just me. But then when we do one of these um, interventions that are just, you know, being outside more or gardening without gloves or something, it clears up. So I, I, I got rid of the depression that way when I was in training as a psychotherapist. Um, I was working with somebody who just, who wasn't even an ecotherapist, just a really good gardener. And she said, you should garden without gloves. It's, it's good for you. And I did. And my depression immediately lifted. So soil bacteria isn't always a cure for depression, but there's research being done on it right now that indicates that in some cases it seems to be. Yes. That's amazing. And I know there is a philosopher, I don't remember the name, but he said one of the major problems of this century is that we human beings, you know, we are living far from nature. And yeah. that's one of the major contributing factors, you know, to our psychological problems. And I couldn't agree more. And um, it's a really interesting approach. And I'd like to add just one more thing about eco-psychology. I come from a school of thought that we believe everything is alive and has consciousness in nature. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so all the plants, the sea, even the air, the planets, the stars, they all have energy and they're alive and they have consciousness. That's why when we interact with them, you know, it's an exchange of energy. And I think um, it's very much related to the concept of eco-psychology, like, when we walk in the nature, we are receiving a certain kind of energy. Yeah, absolutely. I would, um, I'd go even a little bit further and say the rocks and the buildings and the cars and everything else that you just mentioned. Um, the, it, the, the name animism comes up a lot in these discussions. And uh, it's for a while it was discredited, but now philosophers are starting to get re-interested in it. it here in the West, in other cultures, it's always been vinyl. And um, I'm, you know, I am myself a card-carrying animist. I think everything's alive. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I believe in that too. If someone wants to learn eco psychology, uh, what can they do? I would recommend Ariana Kandel's program. She's great. She trained with us. We know each other. So, um, Ariana's program. If you look up Ariana and eco psychology, that should come up. So her program, Lewis and Clark College in the States has a program. Um, they're starting to spread out as people realize that they're effective. And then there's, if you, if you go to um, either in person or online, if you, if you look up eco-psychology, there, there will be books that come up now. So there's, you can read about it too. Mm -hmm. That's great. And as we are approaching the end of our podcast, I would love to know is there anything else that you would like to add? Hmm. We've been over some interesting, some interesting ground. I, I think the only thing I would add is that uh, the more I practice things that I'm interested in, both personally and professionally, and and the older I get, um, the more I keep coming back to how story seems to wind up at the center of so many things, and especially. Are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we belong and things like that. And my impression is that if, if there's something ailing us, if we can change the story, that's a big step 
toward changing things on the outside as well. So I, I think that's the thought I would leave people with. What a great addition, Dr. Craig. It's been really wonderful having you on this podcast, and I really enjoyed listening to you. I'm sure our listeners will find this conversation really interesting and useful. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciated our conversation. Sure. Thank you.